Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Core Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Sestari, and this is the show where we're on a quest to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. And today, I'm really excited. We have with us today, Ann Robertson-Tate, who's the president of GeothermX, and we're going to get a good perspective today on all things geothermal and just over the breadth of her career, what she's been able to experience and see and how the industry has evolved and then kind of where she thinks it's headed and what she would like to see from the industry in the next five to 10 years. And so just want to go ahead and dive in. So, Anne, thank you so much for being here with us today on the show. We're really pleased to have you and would love for you just to give the listeners a brief introduction to yourself and how you got involved with GeothermX and just how you ended up here today. Sure. Thanks, Nick. I, re- I really appreciate that you asked me on the podcast. It's it's an honor to be getting the word out about geothermal and, and I I take that chance every chance I get. So that's really appreciated. So how did I get into geothermal? Well, you might say it was uh, what I didn't want to get into when (laughs) I was finishing my bachelor's degree in geology. What I didn't want to get into was uh, doing sedimentary petrology or or well log analysis for oil and gas wells in Houston. (laughs) I just didn't appeal to me at all. and But I thought energy was a great idea. So I started looking into other kinds of energy. And, um, you know, geothermal, I had been working in groundwater management in South Florida. I did my bachelor's degree at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. And, um, you know, groundwater was a big topic there. So I had been working as an intern at the South Florida Water Management District and doing saltwater intrusion analysis and stuff like that. And so it's between energy and water. I mean, geothermal is at the nexus of energy and water. So I think that was the the driving force uh, forces, I would say. One, you know, not wanting to do something that seemed kind of boring to me in a place I didn't want to be. And, um, and something that seemed more forward-looking and involved a skill, at least that I partially had. So with geology and groundwater hydrology. So that was the start, and, and I went on to do a master's degree at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Uh, I had some choices about where to go. Um, you know, there were some universities in the United States that, that did graduate programs in geothermal like Stanford, but um, they were uh, not as sort of specific to geothermal as the, as the Geothermal Institute at the University of Auckland. So I decided to go that direction and I uh, was lucky enough to get a Fulbright scholarship to go because I say lucky because I was totally broke. Uh, so would never have gotten there without getting that scholarship. <laughs> and, you know, I, uh, the good thing about Fulbright's just as a little pitch is that usually people don't tend to apply for them. So your chances of getting a Fulbright scholarship are not too shabby. So oh, I would encourage I people that. to do that anyway. There I went. I did my master's degree there. I, I focused on the Wairake resource in the center of the North Island. The first ever large geothermal power project started in 1959. Um, but there was an interesting phenomenon happening there, which was massive ground subsidence after extraction of the geothermal fluids. And in the early days of geothermal, we weren't really into injection of fluids after the heat had been taken out of them. And I think the New Zealanders were a bit scared that that they were going to get cold water returns to the production wells and things like this. And so they had just not done injection for for many, many years. And I got there in 83, 1983. You see how ancient I am. <laughs> um, and um, what uh, they were just thinking about drilling their first injection well when I got there. And they actually drilled that well while I was doing my master's thesis there. But I, I learned my craft in the context of my master's thesis because the resource at Wairaki evolved a lot over the years. For example, the areas where fluids had been discharging from the resource, as, as the pressure drew down, they became a source of influx of cold water leaking into the reservoir. Um, as the bore fields, the well field expanded to the west into hotter areas, big steam zones began to form as the water level drew down. So these things were rather new to me at this time, you know, more or less, you know, commonplace knowledge now, but at the time it was all sort of, oh, I have to understand how this resource behaved over time to be able to understand what drove the subsidence, the where, the when, 
the formations, etc. So it was a really great introduction to geothermal that was accompanied by a lot of field trips to fantastic geothermal sites. And just being in New Zealand was great. And I met my husband there. So bonus. (laughs) Um, So anyway, a, a long history with New Zealand. So that started my geothermal career. And when I when I came back to the U.S., I started looking for a job, and um, a colleague of mine had done the same program. In fact, I I met him just as he was leaving after finishing his master's degree in New Zealand on geothermal. Uh, that's Roger Hanneberger, who uh, went to work at Geothermex. And so when I finished, I thought, well, I better call Roger and see, see okay, what about Geothermex? Maybe they want another person. And so I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, it's a great place to work, but if you need a fancy office, don't come here. <laughs> if, you need, if you need something interesting to do, there's plenty of that here. So I, I didn't need a fancy office. And honestly, the, the office in those days was pretty crappy. <laughs> but uh, the, the thing that kept me at Geothermex, which since 1985 to now, um, has been the diversity of projects that I have seen over these many years. And, you know, all the aspects of geothermal, um, technical, commercial, <clears throat> environmental, you know, all of it has just been an amazing ride. And and I would never exchange it for anything else. I'm so glad I I took that sort of idea from my bachelor's degree days and and went with it and ended up at Geothermax where we see literally hundreds of resources every year because people come to us for advice. Uh, people come to us for due diligence on the, on the resource supply for geothermal projects so they can be financed. And this gives us a window that I think is pretty unique. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really amazing. You know, just the kind of the course through which it just, you know, you ended up being in geothermal, which even, I mean, I would say even in my time studying in school, isn't something that's readily brought up uh, as an option, unless, unless you purposely, like you kind of sought it out in a way of, you know, looking for another route, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, I think what I'm really excited just to tease out of, you know, your experiences that you've been involved in the industry for a, a long time and gotten to see sort of the evolution of, you know, the conventional hydrothermal and steam reservoirs all the way to now kind of expanding out into other resources and other technologies. But I guess, you know, one thing that I would just love to ask on that is, you know, from your perspective, for those, you know, the lay person or someone who didn't even know geothermal existed until maybe actually may still not even know it exists because it doesn't, it's still, it gets, it's getting better in terms of it's, yeah, it's still a footnote in a lot of, you know, scenarios that you read stuff. So I guess, just from your experience, you know, how, how cool slash, you know, throughout that time, you know, what has been something that has really stuck out to you in terms of just the, you know, the resource itself, but also just the, the industry as a whole, uh, you know, in terms of how it's grown, how it's adapted, um, you know, and how it's been surviving and thriving for, you know, a long time. And now it's growing, obviously, and we need it to grow more. But, you know, just for those that may not have any idea that it's existed for hundreds of years in certain areas, you know, as Geothermex, which I didn't even know Slumbers they had that division until uh, six oh, months ago. Geothermex existed in 1973, so yeah. you know that was when it was formed. So it's been around a long time. But um, <clears throat> I would say the the fundamental the fundamentals of of geothermal are are firmly founded in policy. If you do not have a policy to support Uh, renewables, to encourage renewables, to have incentives for renewables or risk mitigation strategies for renewables, nothing happens. Now, I I think there's a lot of talk, um, a lot of focus on solar energy these days, and and it's a totally valid thing. But one thing I will state about solar is that um, there was a hell of a lot of investment in solar technologies, which led us over 20 plus years to where we are today, where solar is very uh, competitive to install. Now, if you compare solar to geothermal, it has a a little bit of an easier pathway towards success. You have to measure the solar radiation. 
and you know talk about how many days of the year it's sunny and and all that stuff you have to organize your panels in the right orientation and 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 that's pretty much your your planning and and it can yeah. can put you to a feasibility study quite quickly you know get you into that state of of having a feasible project easily um but the investment that was made to get us there shouldn't be forgotten it's in the many many billions yeah. and geothermal has had some support but i would say a tiny fraction of that given to solar and and that unfortunately continues today um obama was the first president to say the words geothermal um and but it's been a little bit quiet since then i think joe biden is is saying geothermal now uh, at least a little bit maybe quietly <laughs> but um what we've been doing in the meantime, since the first project, let's call YRAC a the biggest, the first big project, there were smaller ones before then. And by the way, the Boise district heating system, yeah. you know, is, is over a hundred years old. So yeah. um, there's been heat usage uh, for centuries, you know, before geothermal power, but let's focus on geothermal power. So what we've had um, in addition to, some policy in some places that is promoting geothermal. Um, we've had technology improvements in geothermal. And really I want to talk about here is the binary power plant space. Yeah. So flash steam power plants like YRACA, they produce two phases. They separate the steam from the liquid. The steam goes to the turbine like in any power plant. Um, and the, the separated liquid goes to do something else. Maybe there's some heating, maybe there's some fish farms, maybe there's some, maybe it's just injected eventually at Wairaki, it was injected <laughs> and it all yeah. is injected now. Um, so um, there's lots of other uses you can have for geothermal that separated brine. And one of them is to put a, another power plant that uses that brine. And those are binary cycle power plants that instead of using steam as the mode of fluid, they use uh, a, a fluid that boils at a much lower temperature. So there's a heat transfer from the geothermal fluid to this working fluid. And um, that fluid expands through the turbine and is condensed and loops around over and over again, whereas the heat is transferred once. The geothermal loop is a once-through loop, giving up its heat to that working fluid. So there's been a lot of improvement in binary power plants, leading us to develop lower and lower temperature resources. I would say another trend is that um, people are thinking more about the hybrid uses of geothermal. Like, why are we only doing power? We should do power plus heat if there's a demand yeah. for heat. Um, why aren't we combining with intermittent renewables? And this is happening in a very small scale now with solar PV plants. So geothermal operators who operate, let's call it the de deserts of Nevada, very dry, uh, no, not much water availability, water rights hotly held yeah. and contested, uh, as you can imagine, in an arid area like Nevada. Um, but the, the maximum revenue is earned in the hot summer months and if you have a power plant that is air cooled instead of water cooled then you're suffering in those summer months so solar pv uh, has been installed in three different geothermal projects in nevada leveling out the delivery of power at a nice price uh, a geothermal price that the operators were able to get for that power and there's even one project that has a um, solar thermal uh, array yeah. that boosts the temperature of, of the fluid. So, so there have been advances in technology, but the fact that that geothermal remains so unknown is really, I would say, our own fault. Uh, doing a pretty bad job at marketing our product, making people recognize the value proposition that geothermal offers. It hasn't been a focus. People like me, and and I've emerged from this uh, cocoon in the past, say, three years. Uh, have been just keeping our heads down, doing technical work and, and getting projects going, but not really thinking about why isn't there more geothermal. But there is a really strong push for that now. And podcasts like yours will, will only help spread the word about the only source of clean baseload power that, that runs all the time, uh, day and night. Yeah. So this is, I think, uh, a good omen for the future 
And I'm yeah. even after all this time, I'm feeling very positive about geothermal's future. Yeah, no, I mean that's good. I think, yeah, I you know for me, it's it's it begs the question sometimes when I see it that I yeah I do like when I first started researching, you know, ask myself why is it that when I just am looking at this, I'm like this seems like a pretty great resource with a lot of flexibility in terms of the uses and in terms of the locations now with new technologies, yep. like you mentioned with plants being able to get lower and lower temperature resources. And then just the idea that people are investigating sedimentary basins now, and they're taking right. it outside of just your typical rift system or volcanic system or, you know, basement rock. And so it's, there's all these things that I, I just couldn't help but be like, why is this still a footnote? And I think uh, I've been excited to see some of the new, you know, excitement and push behind it that is a little more verbal out there with some of the companies being a little more just out there in front of here's what we're doing. Uh, we're not staying very closed in about secret things. We're being open with, hey, we're trying to develop mm -hmm. a combined heat and power power plant in this region or this region, or we're trying to do lithium extraction or X, Y, and Z with all these, you know, things. And so I think, uh, yeah, I'm excited too, to hopefully that just continues and snowballs sort of in the next, uh, you know, three to five years. But, you know, I really think it kind of also boils down to personal, personal experience maybe for like someone, you know, solar panels are now being installed on people's roofs. You can do that. Uh, you can kind of have a, a, a interaction per se with solar or wind because you either see it when the wind turbines are going or the panels, or you can have it at your own house. And I think geothermal, my hope is to, to do exactly like what you said is exposed that this can be a, a heating source for not only your home, but like Boise has been doing for hundred years in their city. And then other things, it goes way beyond that, but I mean, there's sustainable community ideas in Africa uh, with, you know, Kalahari is trying to basically revitalize an entire whole entire country by using yeah. geothermal. And so I think that is the stuff that needs to be pushed more to show people like this can not only solve the energy issue, it can save lives and restore, uh, you know, entire communities. So I guess with that, you're, I mean, I would love to hear your opinions on sort of the different use cases of geothermal sure. and how we, and how we make the most of that. And also how that in turn actually helps the economics of some of the projects. If it's looked at that, if you look at it in that you know, light. Sure. Uh, I, but just a, a quick nod to Kalahari that it, that is the, the brainchild of one man, Peter Vivian Neal. And yeah. he's quite amazing uh, person who just has a drive for geothermal. And he, he was going to, he was bound and determined to make it happen. And geothermal people do tend to be kind of like that. Uh, but <laughs> I, I would say he's an exemplar of that, uh, that, breed, let's say. So getting back to the, the the spectrum of geothermal, which is, I think, the focus of your question, there's the geothermal maps that the geothermal industry has been showing for as long as I've been in the business are the tectonic plate maps that show you where geothermal is. And if you look at those maps, you can see those rift zones, you can see the volcanic arcs, you can see areas of of anomalously high heat flow, and they're in very discrete zones, like around the Pacific Ring of Fire, um, in the Mid-Atlantic Rift, where Iceland is. You know, obviously Iceland is one big cooking geothermal <laughs> yeah. system. It's uh, so great. Um, um, and and but the rest of the map, you know, doesn't seem to be of interest. And nothing could be further from the truth. And and this sort of, as I mentioned before, sort of kind of a realization of maybe three or four years ago, it's like, hold on, why why am I just like this, you know, with blinders on? Um, why aren't I embracing the larger spectrum? And so let's let's enumerate it. I think it would be helpful for your listeners. So the 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 simplest and probably uh, most tangible um sort of indication of geothermal is when you see a hot spring, right? Yeah. And so you mm -hmm. see these springs, hot waters, maybe warm waters. Um, they're present in places that have nothing to do with the ring of fire or tectonically active areas. Think of warm springs, Arkansas, or yeah. hot springs in Georgia. Uh, you know, there are such things um, all around the country and and around the world. So 
let's 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 diverge from from the hot spring a minute to just the the most i would say modest but amazing application of geothermal which is the geothermal ground source heat pump system and these are uh, uh systems that use the constant temperature of the earth at, at a relatively shallow depth, say no more than a couple hundred meters typically, um, in some cases a little bit deeper to get it a little bit hotter, um, uh, to, to do space heating and cooling on a residential scale or on a campus scale. These are easy to implement. Uh, Dandelion, the Google yeah. um, startup, is making a, a meal of this in New York State, really taking on a heat pump. The, the massive growth in heat pumps in New York state, you know, I think we owe a lot of credit to, to Dandelion for that and to the state of New York for recognizing that it too, New York state, and yeah. I'm from New York, so I'm very proud of them, <laughs> um, um, can indeed use geothermal energy to great effect. And yeah. I'll tell you a story about a, a colleague of mine who was in the heat pump business, geothermal heat pump business, and did very amazing systems uh, at, at both local and campus scales and residential and campus scales. And and he said he used to say to me, "Oh, yeah, you do geothermal power. That's big G, and I do oh, heat pumps. That's little G." And and I said to him then, and I still believe it, that little G is winning, and yeah. little G will make meaning ground source heat pumps will make a huge difference in our energy utilization, much more meaningful than geothermal power, even though geothermal power might be where the money is and maybe more sexy than a heat pump system, whatever it is. Um, yeah. I think little G is the winner. Nevertheless, um, you know, my focus has been on geothermal power and it'll probably remain mostly there, but let's, let's carry on from, from heat pumps. That's a shallow heat exchange. We drill wells, we circulate water or a glycol water mixture usually through these loops and we take up the heat uh, or we put it back into the ground. So we take up the heat in winter and we use it to heat our house or our, our, our office building. And then we put that heat back into the ground in summer, which allows us to cool that same space. And... Um, Schlumberger, by the way, has a has a startup for heat pumps called Celsius Energy, based in mm. France, um, where new gas connections for heating have been manned. So they're doing campus scale geothermal heat pump systems wow. with an interesting uh, radial arrangement of of wells for heat exchange, uh, drilled from a footprint of two parking spaces. In so wow. they're thinking about the urban environment, which is yeah. so important to address for climate change. Um, so that that is happening there. So, but let's go sort of up up a tier and into the earth a little bit further. Um, we know that as we as we go deeper into the earth, I was about to say as we drill deeper in the earth, but that's how we know it. Uh, <laughs> temperatures rise, and in some places, like around the Ring of Fire, they rise more quickly than in others. Yeah. Let's say in Texas, um, for example. Um, Texas has a, a fairly normal temperature gradient, but if you drill deep enough and you get into these sedimentary horizons that are pretty permeable, uh, you can make some good geothermal power out of that. And it is, as you mentioned in your intro, sort of the the lost geothermal resource, or, or maybe I should say the great geothermal potential that is unrealized as of today. Yeah. But I think we're we're at or over the tipping point with respect to oil and gas companies being interested in geothermal, recognizing their geothermal potential and wanting to develop it. And as I said at the world geothermal Congress, you know, the phone is, is ringing off the hook and many of the calls are from oil and gas operators wanting to know, okay, what's different? What's the same? How can I leverage my team, my skills, my assets, um, for geothermal. And this is, this is really a great untapped resource. Now, there are differences and, and, and similarities, many of both. Um, one of the major differences in, in most oil and gas re reservoirs, you're relying on intragranular permeability and porosity to produce those hydrocarbons. But yeah. underneath those hydrocarbons is always water.
And so the water cut, as it's known, is um, a valuable commodity that operators are beginning to, to tap. Conventional geothermal resources are generally in hard, fractured rock, kind of different than the sedimentary domain. But nevertheless, the principles still cross over between these two geologic environments. And so I will say that oil and gas operators and, and deep sediment, sedimentary basins generally are, are really beginning to look at, be looked at and developed for geothermal power, heat, or both. And they can be used directly in the oil fields. You could power your pumping stations, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. Or you might need heat to, you know, reduce the, the um, sorry, it, I guess it's increase the viscosity of, of no, it's reduce yeah. the viscosity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is, make it easier to flow. Make that heavier oil easier yeah. to flow. So things like that can be useful. Or you could sell the heat, which is often yeah. done in some places, to a nearby greenhouse operator or something like that. So there's value streams to be gained. But I think the, the real technology breakthroughs today are coming in the area of drilling, you know, drilling to very deep depths quickly. Um, and the oil and gas industry is bringing its might yeah. to geothermal in that regard. And it is so needed. You know, we geothermal hasn't been popular, let's say. Um, and so we haven't enjoyed the same kind of value that oil and gas has has known and and held for more than a century. Yeah. By the way, with many trillions of investment in oil and gas. Yeah. So I'm deliberately comparing investments with a reason. I think geothermal has been getting short shrift yeah. on at the government trough. And, and I think that investment by at least, you know, I could speak for the United States where I live and I'm a taxpayer. I think we could, we could use a few more zeros on that geothermal technologies budget. But anyway, um, what oil and gas, in addition to, to drilling uh, technology, is bringing are ideas that hadn't uh, been uh, considered before, um, let's say, since about maybe 10, until about 10 years ago. And that is enhanced geothermal systems mm-hmm. or engineered geothermal systems. You can choose yep. your E there, which basically means um, how can we create permeability in deep, hot rocks where nature didn't give us that. And just to go back to a conventional uh, and compare to a conventional geothermal resource, a geothermal resource that you can drill into and just produce the fluids without any stimulation, without any manipulation of the subsurface, exists and, and can be developed because the permeability is high enough to give you big flow rates of water out of these wells. And the wells are drilled differently, they're, they're completed differently, but, um, you know, in a way that preserves the heat and, and allows lots of flow into the well. These are the keys of successful geothermal wells that they are hot and they produce a lot of water. So these um, systems are not necessarily everywhere, but enhanced or engineered geothermal systems take on the, the prospect of geothermal anywhere. And yeah. I'll just before I go into a little bit more about EGS and and advanced geothermal systems, AGS, which are closed loop systems, let me let me um, just back up for a moment and say that um, the the technology that we that we need is being driven by the urgency of the situation we are in vis-a-vis climate change. So Ideas that were old are new and reinvented, and new ideas altogether are coming into the scene. So we're seeing an adaptation of, let's say, um, the hydraulic stimulation techniques that are being used in tight shales. This is a direct crossover from oil and gas. And we're using those technologies to create new geothermal reservoirs um, in many different geologic domains, not only in the ring of fire or the volcanic or high temperature domain. So this is a a really promising um, subject of research and development and investment that's going on today. And its companion, 
Um, well, sometimes they're not very good companions, <laughs> they're competitors, but the advanced geothermal systems, which are closed loop systems, um, they rely, instead of uh, creating permeability and convective heat transfer like normal geothermal wells have, they're relying on conductive heat transfer mm -hmm. from complicated subsurface systems that pick up the heat in, in sort of what I call a radiator in reverse in the subsurface. And there are amazing ideas out there for them, and they will likely work. Um, yeah. uh, there, there's some very good evidence suggesting that closed-loop systems can work if they are complex enough, if, they're, if, the, if the fins of the radiator, if you want to think about it that way, are spaced at the right distance, they're the right diameter, the thermal siphoning effect comes in, you know, and, and all of these things are possible. Um, the cost of that developing those systems still, uh, up in the air, but, um, there's a lot of investment in, in trying to create those systems and bring down the cost such that they are commercially viable. So between drilling EGS and AGS, we have a really vibrant sort of thought process going on about geothermal that I will credit in part to the University of Texas at Austin and their pivot conferences. Yeah. Um, this has really been something that's driven a lot of thinking about how could we do geothermal better, faster, cheaper. So um, I'll, maybe I'll stop there because I think I've sort of run through most of the gamut. Well, no, I haven't really. Um, mineral, you mentioned yeah, it, the uh, mineral recovery. Now, minerals... It's so interesting. I for I, I went to the World Geothermal Congress and I presented a couple of papers um, uh, there and participated in some panel discussions and stuff like that. But before that, I was in the UK at a Cornish mining conference. And you might mm. think, what the heck does that have to do with <laughs> geothermal? Well, it turns out quite a lot. Um, as we know, Many mineral deposits are associated with old hydrothermal systems that have been cooking around in the past, and, and they're not maybe hot anymore, but there's an ore body left behind. Um, we're actually working on a project in New Guinea where they're still coexisting, this hydrothermal oh, wow. system and, and a gold mine, uh, and, wow. and that is awesome. at Lahir Island. But anyway, an exciting project, to be yeah. sure, um, and one that's been going on for many, many years. But uh, I think the the mineral recovery aspect, and, and going back to Cornwall, they have lithium-rich brines, geothermal brines, that are produced in Cornwall, and there's a huge push for lithium production in Cornwall. With Brexit, you know, considering the political situation of sort of separating from Europe and and beyond, you know, having um, China as a source of many of our critical minerals. Yeah. There's a huge push in the UK and in Cornwall specifically to, to have a domestic source of critical minerals. And lithium is, of course, uh, high among them. And, and the beautiful thing about lithium and geothermal brines is that there are many technologies with which to extract the lithium. And, um, you know, who wins that race is a, is a very exciting race to watch. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's going to be more than one. Um, the Cornish brines happen to be very clean um, mm. compared to, say, those uh, in the Salton Sea of Southern California, which yeah. are also very rich in lithium. But they have a little bit more uh, other stuff to deal with in these yeah. hypersaline brines that they have there. The Cornish brines are relatively clean. But major projects going on for lithium recovery, and there might be some other interesting stuff in those brines as well that can be used for um, for uh, energy, for battery storage, and for other energy needs. But generally, I mean, they're going back to mining in Cornwall. Yeah, tin, copper. You know, we need all that stuff to keep us yeah. going through the energy transformation that's underway today. Yeah, no, we do. I mean, yeah, I think just before we, you know, go any further, I think just that, you know, that alone, that summary to me is is just perfect and encompasses exactly what the hope is with the show of educating and just exposing geothermal because, I mean, 
you, we could even go longer, but I think that's just the, that gives people a frame of reference to say, you know, this is a, it's global. It's no longer geographically limited as maybe what it, it was thought. Everybody you know, almost can do heat pumps. I mean, yeah. the, you know, if only that and, and, and so much more, you know, there's heat in the earth everywhere. Yeah. And then it's, you know, and then, and then, like you said, not to, and then after that, it's the technologies, it's these, it's this, the no longer working in silos or with blinders on and being like, well, Hey, I've spent the last 10 years learning how to drill three mile long horizontals and tight shale. Why don't we, why don't we just cross pollinate and actually learn how to just do this and take this. And so I love seeing X oil and gas or even just community working together saying, Hey, we learned how to pretty much do a factory development where we just <laughs> drilled well after well after well. And it started out really uneconomic and really expen- expensive. And then as we kept drilling and learning and doing things like any, like any technology, we brought it down the cost curve. And so I think that's, to me, that's what I, I love to see is the urgency right now is a lot of these companies, like you said, have taken this sense of, we can't wait around uh, for geothermal to be here in 10 years. We have to, we have to start today doing very rapid advancements and really doing a lot of R and D, which does need a lot of money. But I, I love seeing people taking that on as an urgency of saying, Hey, we need to figure this stuff out, but there's a lot of things out there already that have been done in the past or right now that can be kind of tailored just a little bit differently to the geothermal space and be made, uh, you know, to be used as something that will help us not only access the heat, but do it in a, in a competitive cost competitive and, and, you know, economic scenario. And so I think, but, you know, I want to go back to something we kind of briefly touched at the beginning, but, you know, it's more of a broad question that there may not be an exact answer, but more just want to get your opinions. But, you know, how how do we get to a place where there are the correct policies in place for geothermal? You know, and I'll, I'll say U.S. for now, because obviously globally, that is that's a, everywhere is different. But, you know, on a U.S. basis, you know, and it's starting to happen some where there's a little more lobbying, there's a little more working with collaboration with regulatory to figure out how we create a system like oil and gas has done where it's relatively easy to go and permit a well where I've talked with some operators in yeah. the geothermal space that it can take a re- really long amount yeah. of time to get even a project even approved. So, I mean, yeah, and you're there, you, you know more than I do, but like, how, <laughs> how do we get to a place where, you know, there are, there are systems in place and then also, I mean, the investment piece is separate, but how do we get to a place where at least the actual implementation and going out and doing a project is less of a headache to where it attracts more people and more oil and gas companies to say, well, maybe we could just tack this on to our acreage because it's not that much more effort for us to go out and, and do this, you know, and it's not a cumbersome activity. Well, there, there's some interesting answers to that. And, and I'll go to North Dakota where the regulatory environment you may know it um, is is so much easier um, to permit wells, um, and so there's a quite a lot of geothermal drilling happening in the Williston Basin. Yeah, uh, mostly for heat. Um, but I'll note one project on the on the Saskatchewan side of the Williston mm. Basin, and that is Deep, uh, the Deep Earth Energy Production Company, yep. or Deep. Um, you know, they're, they're tapping into an area of the basin that's pretty hot. They're going to be generating power from fluids at about 125 to 130 degrees Celsius. And they have a plethora of other activities that involve things that are very relatable by people. And another project like that is the Alberta number one project, um, that's happening obviously in Alberta. Um, and both of these projects have a strong community angle to their project. And so uh, the reason I'm mentioning it in the sort of how can we make geothermal projects move faster and do we need better regulation or, or uh, policy for it is because to me, the more you engage communities in simple geothermal things like the heat pump community, like yeah. heating for their school, like uh, an industrial park that's heated by geothermal energy and 
Um, maybe there's some mineral recovery, who knows from these fluids, you know, it sounds like kind of a chaotic mess of things, but they're all tied to a central theme and that is geothermal energy. Yeah. And so I think communities will help us spread the word about geothermal, just that sort of grassroots support for geothermal. The more we do it, even at the, at the level of the modest residential heat pump, you know, will yeah. will help our case. However, now I'll switch to the, you know, the top of the cake here, which is <laughs> yeah. we need to be doing more lobbying for our cause. We need to be educating policymakers better. As I mentioned, I've been keeping my head down working on the technical details of projects because really that's all I had the bandwidth to do. But now, as uh, uh, having become president of Geothermex in 2020, yeah, took a while to get there, but it was worth the wait. Yeah. And now I get to think about stuff like this and how we influence policymakers and legislators to um, accept, not only accept, but embrace geothermal as yeah. part of their own energy mix. Um, and the across the United States, and let's get... U.S. centric again for a minute. Um, across the United States, there is geothermal potential in all 50 states. Yeah. Different types in different states, but there's something for everyone there. In other words, yeah. we don't have to be thinking, oh, it's all in the West, in California, Nevada, and Idaho, and places like that. No, we have plenty of geothermal things to do. Um, we have plenty of ways to make. Uh, I think sedimentary basins and and wind go together very well, but wind yeah. is intermittent. So could a, a little geothermal project help out a wind company? You know, I talked about a, a solar project helping a geothermal yeah. company. Maybe we can flip the tables there. And um, and so anyway, the the point is that we do need to educate the public, the policymakers, and our legislators much more fully about geothermal. And I think that is, uh, perhaps I'm being overly optimistic, but I think that's well underway. And um, we have to get the word geothermal out there more in the lexicon and in the uh, political sphere. I mean, that's just a, an absolute yeah. requirement and something I'm I'm trying to promote however I can. Yeah, no, I think that's that is huge because it starts at the bottom of you know I think I I'll use places like Kenya even for example of how yeah. like the country is full they're fully bought not just geothermal but I mean they're fully bought into the resources that their country can offer and trying to did you, you know, hear work Rebecca Miano at at yeah. UGC wasn't that an amazing speech yeah. she, she hit all the high points of geothermal I know. And Incredible. I was so yeah. happy to hear that really elucidated the value proposition really well. Yeah, it was a perfectly, you know, perfectly done in terms of how you would want to go and take that that speech or that conversation to someone as the value proposition of, yeah. yes, using a use case of Kenya, but that but that exists, like you said, in, in all 50 states, there's a different sure. way that that can impact a the local community, a state, and then overall the, the mm -hmm. country. But it's that someone has to buy in and there almost has to be a forced, you know, someone, like you said, the community forcing the legislature in their own state to say, hey, why, why, why aren't we looking at this here? Like this, I want a heat pump. I don't want this anymore. Or I want, you know, these different, whatever they're seeing, they need to obviously have the education first to say that. But it, you know, when they realize the picture of, how much we can eliminate in terms of ga greenhouse gas emissions from simply the heating space alone. Uh, it's, it's pretty unbelievable when you look at how big of a number it is. It's happening in Massachusetts. And this is an amazing story. There was a, a woman who detected a gas leak in her home uh, somewhere in the Boston area. I don't think it was in Boston proper, but um, she and methane, you know, natural gas is methane. Of course, methane yeah. is a terrible actor in the climate change um, in terms of its, you know, effect on climate change. So methane, old systems of gas pipes in, in an older city in the U.S. Um, and it was leaking. And, and she just got on a, a tirade of 
I can't have gas leaking into my home. What if this is toxic, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then she said, she turned to heat pumps as a solution. And she's just like a one woman campaign to put heat pumps in the yeah. city of Boston wow. and surrounds. <laughs> so, um, it, it, it is happening. And now is it yeah. happening fast enough? Probably not for you and not for me, not for the planet. <laughs> um, yeah. but, um, it is happening to some degree. And, and just wanted to say for those who didn't know who Rebecca Miano is, she's the CEO of KenGen, which mm. is, um, an electricity generator in Kenya. It was, uh, it is the state electricity generator and they operate nearly 900 megawatts of geothermal power. Um, and they're really, uh, growing. Uh, Kenya as a country is really growing its geothermal power such that it can provide more electricity to more people and at a reasonable price and yeah. avoid the amazing price they pay for heavy fuel oil and other um, emergency generations in the face of intermittent hydro, which is being affected by climate change. So just yeah. sorry, a little backstory there. No, it's, that's, it's, that's a good point. Just in, I mean, it's along the lines of what we've already talked about with the idea of, you know, it's eliminating energy poverty to degrees of what they're being able to geothermal is, you know, more dispatchable and can be flexible. And the idea of mm -hmm. this geothermal anywhere concept is that there can be microgrids created in areas that just need, whether that's critical infrastructure or whether that's just communities that that it or needs a you know agricultural uses for it or or help yeah. their you know the fish farming or just for local heating and cooling but also Kenjin's whole you know they're they're working towards that picture for energy independence or getting getting closer to not having to depend on you know foreign fuels or high cost importing and I and think that's on a, a huge centralized thing. grid too they're, yeah. they're trying to avoid that too and with that in mind I think we should mentioned the advent of micro binary power plants that are coming up now there's at least five vendors that i know of who are making these small modular units that you can kind of just drop in place yes yeah. you need some infrastructure around transmission but the off-grid opportunities for for these types of systems or local mini-grid kind of opportunities, if you want to think about it that way, is phenomenal. And much of East Africa could benefit from this. Uh, I yeah. mean, Tanzania is just phenomenal uh, resources, yeah. geothermal resources that it has of all types, all across the country. In fact, yeah. they're really like the U.S. in that respect. We have high temperature volcanic resources all the way down to, you know, moderate temperature, binary power plant type resources to, you know, heating to heat pumps, you know, the, the same condition exists in many places and, and around the world and where there isn't a centralized grid or no connection to a particular area, you really have a chance to lift people um, yeah. with electricity that is local, clean, you know, yeah, and, and, and in their control, load. you know, yeah. so hopefully really affordable to say, yeah. that's what I mean by in their control. Yeah. No. And I mean, and it helps to some degree create, uh, you know, jobs and consumer Absolutely. Uh, aspects out of those communities. Of and it just, I think that's, I can't help but always bring it up because to me, that's just one of the biggest things that gets me the most excited slash passionate about needing like geothermal needs to be in the discussions on all these reports for, you know, when we're looking at the IEA and all these things for, you know, renewables accounting for, you know, multi terawatt amounts of energy, but then there's, there's no real, uh, I mean, there's somehow two in there, but there's a lot of just not quite grasped like the full potential of what mm -hmm. geothermal can do in that equation yeah. you know we haven't even talked about jobs really but yeah. uh, but the geothermal development company of kenya which is the state geothermal developer gdc they have a strict policy of having direct utilization uh heat projects at all of the sites that they're investigating and they're the person who leads their direct utilization scheme is a woman named Martha Mburu of GDC, a fantastic person who has has created amazing opportunities um, at geothermal sites so that local people are 
are really involved. And that sort of get, gets back to the idea of community as yeah. a promoter of geothermal. I mean, in the Kenyan case, you know, we're thinking of, okay, let's, let's create some business opportunities there. Um, there's nothing like that to warm people's heart, not to use a bad pun towards geothermal, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that alone is just such a, a great element of geothermal. And yeah. so, you know, power to the grid. And for many of us, it's a pretty remote concept. Yeah, I know yeah. there's a grid out there. Here I am in California. I know I get power from it. But, you know, a real opportunity that you work on, that you are involved in, yeah. you know, as for employment, you know, or for your community, however it works, is a real meaningful um, entry point into geothermal energy. And I think that's yeah, the kind absolutely. of grassroots support that we that we need as well, as, as I said, yeah. as well as convincing politicians to do the right thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think there's a lot to learn, at least in my opinion. I mean, I think there's a lot to learn from countries like Kenya and even Iceland and New Zealand. Oh, Iceland, you know, what they do there I mean, is amazing. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand and, too. I mean, they're, they're all great countries and, and they're really um, innovating, especially yeah. in Iceland. They have a huge innovation um, sector in Iceland doing amazing things with genetic crops and you name yeah. it i mean it's all over the map lots of they're definitely they're definitely the the you know leading the charge and leading the way and in, in terms of making the most out of resources and using them to the fullest you know i, I had someone on the show the company it's geosilica which was actually la the oh yeah an episode yeah that they're you know taking the silica and developing health products but just talking about yep. their technology which is obviously their that's more of their actual you know what they consider their business is the technology of extracting and bringing these minerals to health grade or just, you know, very diluting them. But it's, it was interesting talking to them of they, the idea of why it came about of the idea of nothing should be waste. Like there should be no yeah. considering of like that waste is just an extra added OPEX cost to most companies. I mean, same with disposal wells and sure. yes, that water, some of those wells you're putting away 20,000 barrels of water a day. And even if it's only, uh, you know, low temperature, oh, you know, 150 degrees Fahrenheit or, or close to 200. If you have 20,000 plus barrels a day, you could, in a local sense for your site, like you said, you could be possibly powering your own pumps, Absolutely. doing other things to eliminate all that OPEX you're just spending. So I think that was cool talking with Fita of Geosilica and just listening to like, wow, yeah. this is, that's the mindset of, and we've done it in oil and gas and other places, but it's, it's the mindset of how do we, not just say we need electricity solutions, clean solutions, but also like how do we really use every ounce of heat before reinjecting that we possibly can to do something, uh, you know, in the yeah. community. And I that, think you're and talking about stewardship yeah. here. I mean, it yeah. really is stewardship of the land, um, a consciousness about the land and, and the subsurface and what it can deliver. Um, it is, it is really I would say that people, sorry, I don't know how old you are, but um, people who are the age of, of my children who are in their early 20s are thinking that way. And I am so glad. Um, I'm learning something from them every day. And it is this stewardship element that really, really appeals to them. So we, we and I think all of us, have to embrace that concept. Whatever we do has an impact. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and cool there's, there's yeah. always a trade-off, you know, in the impact. Yeah. There's nothing, no free lunch, I guess, is the phrase that comes <laughs> on mind, no. to mind. But it it's true, you know, each, each type of energy, each type of activity that we humans do has an impact. Yeah. And our, our goal now has to be to um, reduce those impacts as much as we can. And to me, geothermal energy is a great way to do that. You know, so many uses um, and, and uh, uh, how do I say this? You know, they talk about the circular economy. Geothermal yeah. has kind of a circular nature as well does, um, yeah. with putting the fluid back in the ground after we take the heat to, to sustain the resource and all the side activities that can be done with geothermal energy. 
um, if if a power plant is developed or even if a hot fluid is developed. So many things yeah. you can do with it. It's, so many things, yeah. It's really quite astounding and, and hopeful for the future. Yeah, but it, it definitely is, like you said, stewardship and like more of kind of the, you know, the intrinsic value inside of you that you want to do. I mean, I think I would we say the majority of us want to make it, yeah. want to make a lasting impact, want to do something that sets up our, you know, kids and their kids and the future generations for, for better than what we had. That's always been in, inside of, you know, every generation. But I think it's been really cool to talk to some of the startups I've had on the show that are, are, you know, in varying stages of their career, but most, a lot have been ex oil and gas Yep. people just transferring over. And I asked the question of, you know, well, why they're like, oh, I really just always wanted to, to, you know, t- take my hand at entrepreneurship. And so this was my chance. And I was like, yeah, but you know, why geothermal? There's a lot of things that you could have done in that realm. And they, majority of them are, you know, part of it's a, it's a challenge and I want to take on a new challenge and, and solve problems mm-hmm. because that's where my mind is as a technical subsurface person. But, yep. but B it's, it's the, I want to be part of the solution and part of making a, a change and making a difference in the next phase of humanity production and humanity yeah. generally. Yeah. yeah. More just, yeah. So it's that to me is, is where it kind of lies is the the passion to say, you know, and I, and I, lo- I do enjoy seeing that from, you know, oil and gas companies taking on more of a, a ownership of looking into, low carbon solutions and, and carbon sequestration and even on geothermal, of course, for sure, but just taking the, the ownership of, and they have been for, I think years now, I mean, mo- mo- most, I mean, have been saying that we have to be part of the solution, not, not the problem. And I think in my time, I've gotten to talk to some of the people at neighbors and NOV and mm, on the service side, they really do believe. Yeah. yeah. And they, they believe, wholeheartedly in in a lot of different renewables, but say geothermal is, is very applicable and a great option for where we've been spending our, so our many years of, yeah. of research and R&D and tools and drilling technologies and all these things. And so yep. I, it's a I hope it continues thing. to grow. Uh, I, I hope so too. Pull. So. And, and it's super important that it does. On the, and, um, you know, the how do I say this in a nice way? I think the people who invest in oil and gas companies are pretty much demanding a change. Yeah. And, um, and that's not an insignificant driver. Let's just say. Yeah, no, and absolutely. if it has to happen through that avenue, I'm totally fine with it. But I think people begin to realize things as they, as they think about other sources of energy and, yeah. You know, oil and gas has had a product that everybody has wanted for more than a hundred years, and everybody yeah. has been willing to buy, and they're still willing to buy, and it will continue yeah. to be and a it fuel will, yeah, for sure. that we need and we will use as we transform our energy supplies. You know, it's not going away tomorrow. So, I think yeah. the each each oil company has its own trajectory towards a cleaner future and and the pathways that they're taking are are fascinating you know they are, they're yeah. varied and fascinating Very not fascinating, all of yeah. them want to do geothermal some do some no. don't whatever you know but yeah. i think the whole the whole transformation we're going, of the we're sector going is direction. amazing yeah yeah and i think it's the the last piece on that is just like you said way you know earlier in our talk about the incentives right i think mm-hmm. that goes both for developers of renewables that there needs to be incentives but they're also you know, the economic incentives and other things to make them competitive and attractive for these companies to pivot and invest resources and time and people and money into this. You know, we need that capital and that investment that those companies can steer towards these things. It's like a push and a pull. Both are needed. Yeah. 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 But, well, I have really and thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, Uh, Nick. You know, I think it's been very informative for myself and I, I know for the listeners uh, just exploring the the realm of geothermal and kind of its evolution and how we have gotten to where we are and what we need to hopefully do for the next, I would say even 12 to 24 months, but then hopefully the next decade of, of really pushing for geothermal to be in the conversations of not only local dinner tables, but also in the, in the policy and in the White House and in the national seen even things such as COP26 being more of a center piece in those discussions versus uh, not really even being brought up except for maybe a brief 
moment or, or undertone. And so I think, you know, yeah. but, but with that, with that, I always ask three questions to close out. They're just okay, random okay, here we questions. Go. So the, the first one is just what piece of advice would you give to a younger you or someone in their, you know, studying in college or someone just kind of trying to figure out what direction they want to take? Well, um, I would say be creative and, and go out of your comfort space. So and what I mean by that is I did geology, but when I did my master's degree and I, it took to the master's to get I, the geology, the bachelor's in geology was pretty fundamental. Um, I really diverged from the geoscience space into thermodynamics and, and power production and things like that. So be brave, I would say, and, um, you know, embrace the, the variety of, of topics that you need to have a, a more holistic view. That said, don't go too wild on that because you'll yeah. get, you'll lose your focus, but yeah, it like understand the big picture around the topic that you're studying is I guess what I would say. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, no, that's yeah, very valuable is to, I mean, it's good to stretch yourself and to learn other things, but not get too distracted. I was way on, out of my depth, path. but yeah. I had people helping me. That's why, yeah, why you go to university. Yeah. yeah that is, <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah. <laughs> well, number two is across your, you know, your time and your career with Geothermex, you know, what is one experience or project or, you know, location that you would say is your favorite, uh, you know, over the course of your career that you've gotten to work? I would say I have to go to Kenya um, and you, you seem to have a, a love for Kenya as well. So <laughs> I do. there is a, a, a property adjacent to the Okaria field, which is an amazing, huge, wonderful geothermal field. And it is owned by a company called Osarian and Osarian grows flowers with geothermal heat um, they have a whole business park that uses geothermal heat, so they're they're sort of expanding their their operations to include geothermal in every way, and they've really looked at it holistically from how specifically for the flower, flower farm, how they use compost, where it comes from. There, there's a whole cycle that is integrated and and whole kind of like the the pure minerals sorry the um uh geosilica um that yeah. the company sorry i confused the name that you were talking about before you know recognizing that they would have a waste stream and what could they do to mitigate that waste stream these guys have been doing an amazing job on on optimizing how they use geothermal heat to grow flowers and They've put in a, a solar farm too, and they they just have a vision of um, an industry that is totally revolving around geothermal. So I would say I would name the Osarian project as one that has been super satisfying and yeah. and interesting. There's there's others too, but that one comes to mind. Yeah. No, that's maybe because we were that's, talking about Kenya. Yeah, that and it's because it goes back to that sort of intrinsic just nature of stewarding and, and mm -hmm. really the heart of full full community involvement and development instead of just focusing on pure power plant and, and power plant. One thing they have there too is a game reserve, and I, I don't mm, know if yeah. you know where Okari is. It's by Lake Naivasha, which is the only freshwater lake in the Rift Valley and a very valuable resource, and the animals go to drink and in, in Lake Naivasha and then they can travel through the Osarian lands into a game sanctuary that is for them where more water, you know, fake water bodies have been made yeah. for them. And so they, they have more than just geothermal. Yeah. Um, they take the CO2 from one of the geothermal power projects and pipe it into their greenhouses to make wow. the flowers grow faster. And they Jeez. leave yeah. um, pathways open for the game to migrate from the lake into the sanctuary. Wow. It's just kind of a, a lovely yeah. place. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Very, very encouraging and, and, you know, 
it's you know more more of like a charge to do that wherever it's possible to do yeah. better for everything around you not just you know leave the place you're operating better than it was before uh, and i would but, say they're definitely doing that yeah and then the last one to close out is just a book recommendation uh for the listeners doesn't have to be geothermal related can be a recent one can be an all-time favorite but just one that comes to top of mind Ooh, i i i admit to a weakness for <laughs> spy novels and, and like murder mysteries sort of <laughs> things. So I would say I can't, I can't, I mean, geothermal books are great. There, there is an excellent one written by Raffaele Cataldi uh, about the history of geothermal. And um, okay. I'll, I'll get you the name of that. It doesn't spring to mind. It's lovely. It's beautifully photographed. Um, and, and goes back to Roman times and beyond. Of course he's Italian. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. goes back to Roman times and even beyond. So that's a real good one. But, um, honestly, I've been really enjoying, um, well, my, two favorite authors, one in the spy genre, Jean Le Carré, uh, mostly because of the way he uses the English language. It's just brilliant. So for any English speaking person, it's just like a glory to read the words. Um, the other one, totally different, is Henning Mankel, which is who is a Swedish author. Uh, who they made a TV show out of it, Wallander. He's he's his name is Wallander, and he's an ex- okay. inspector. And and it's the exact opposite of John Le Carre, maybe because it's translated from Swedish, but <laughs> the language is super sparse. It's just like hmm. he's. The, you're in the mind of Inspector Wallander, and he's describing kind of grim scenes where a murder has been conducted. And but it's it's so sparse as to be almost scientific um, huh, in its description, and it leaves the reader to imagine the rest. Huh. Where whereas Le Carre, he he builds such a beautifully complete picture with his language that you really get it right away, you know? And yeah. so anyway, those are, those are two authors that I really like, but awesome. no, that's I'm great. pretty busy and haven't read that much. These yeah. days, so. I know that's fair. That's fair enough. But that's say hey, that's good. That's I always just get the immediate top ahead answers, which is what I love. Okay. So. Well, you got it. But yeah, got them. Well, thanks again, Anne, for coming on and thank you everyone that's uh, tuning in. And if this is your first time tuning in, thank you. And please make sure you like the show and rate it and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you're returning, uh, appreciate the support and pass this along. If there's anyone you think would enjoy the content here and appreciate the core knowledge family support on our quest to bringing awareness to the heap beneath our feet. And until next time, everyone take care and we'll be talking soon. Thank you.